Today we look forward in four days' time to the celebration of Thanksgiving. We gather together to offer Thanksgiving to God. That's what we're supposed to be doing, uh, but it's largely forgotten in our day. Um, You often hear of it referred to as Turkey Day, um, Parade Day, a day for football. Um, I kind of accept that the secular world's going to view it that way. I don't expect pagans to look at it as Christians do. But it is interesting to me that I was listening to Christian radio one night, and I heard a uh, Christian radio host say, it's a day that's all about a focus on family. And so even there, a Christian radio host gets it wrong. We celebrate with our family. We gather with our family. We celebrate our family in a sense. But the Thanksgiving for that family goes to God. The thanksgiving for the food that we have goes to God. The thanksgiving that we have a day of rest that we can celebrate together. The thanksgiving goes to God. And all that pictures we'll be looking at in Hebrews of an ultimate day of rest and thanksgiving and praise and comfort. And so all of that is what we're supposed to be celebrating on this Thursday. So we deny that it's primarily about family, although we celebrate it with family. And that's great. Family is one of the great gifts that God has given us, and we should celebrate with our families. But don't forget the the person uh, to whom we are thankful. I guess I should say the subject to whom we are uh, thankful, and that is God. And so again, we gather with our families. We're thankful for our families. We are thankful to our families in some regard, secondarily, but our primary thanksgiving must be offered to God. The Scriptures say that every good and perfect gift comes from Him. So everything that we have reason to be thankful for, we have reason to be thankful to Him for. And so we need to always keep that in mind. And maybe that is turkey. Maybe you're thankful for turkey. That's okay. It's okay to be thankful for good food. God gave it to us. It's okay to be thankful for recreational things like parades and football. Just keep them in their proper place. Enjoy them. But realize that we have thanksgiving to God for all these blessings. Last year, God blessed us to walk through the Thessalonian epistles, and we uh, saw much that was in those. But one of the things that we may remember is that there's something the Apostle Paul says about living out the will of God in our lives. He says this in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we had a sermon on this. It's uh, on Sermon Audio. You can go look it up. But we're talking about people make a mystery of God's will. Like, what, does, what is God's specific will for me? Is it to buy this type of bread or this type of bread? Is it to do this or to do that? Paul says, listen, buy whatever bread you want. You know, Take the job that you think you'll glorify God most in. But here's how you live out the will of God in Christ Jesus in your life. Live a life of rejoicing in God. Rejoicing always. A life of prayer to God. A life of thanksgiving toward God in every circumstance or situation. And if we struggle with those things, if we struggle in always rejoicing and always giving thanks, it's because sometimes we let our present circumstances get in the way of realizing what all we have to be thankful for. And Paul wants us to get past that. God wants us to get past that and recognize that there are always reasons to rejoice. Joy is not something that comes and goes. Joy is something God has given us. And so again, uh, we are to live lives of joy and prayer and thanksgiving to God. And so it's a simple list. Try to work on those things and you'll be doing okay. 
a simple and short list. We are to live in the joy of the Lord in prayer to Him and with thanksgiving in all things. Now, that's a call, really, for the, the people of God because if we talk about getting together for worship and praise, at the root of worship and praise is thanksgiving, isn't it? We come to recognize the greatness of God, but uh, we recognize the greatness of God in His love and providence for us as well, don't we? We recognize that He's been kind to us. He has taken care of us. He has saved us. In fact, at the heart of the gospel is the very need to recognize the thanksgiving that we should have toward God, for He has delivered those who could not deliver themselves. He has given us the one thing that truly matters that we could not offer ourselves. And so at the heart of all of praise and worship really is thanksgiving. When we get together and we sing songs about the glory of God, we are thankful for a good and glorious God, worthy of our worship. We sing hymns about our fellowship, our church, the church that Christ died for. We are thankful for such a great gift as a family of believers in whom we are a part. We sing songs about Christian homes and our families. We are thankful to God for the gift that He has given us, a family. Thanksgiving is at the heart of who we are as a people, and we shouldn't forget that. That is why it says, in everything give thanks. It's not a temporary or occasional thing. We are called to always be a thankful people. In fact, we'll sing a song in just a little bit, Come Ye Thankful People Come. That song recognizes that we should be a people recognized by thanksgiving, right? A people who are a thankful people. And so we need to remember that always. And so when the children of Israel in the Old Testament, this is not just a New Testament command, when the children of Israel were instructed to observe the Passover, what was the purpose? To remember what God had done and to offer Him thanksgiving for it. God is our deliverer who took us out of bondage in Egypt and delivered us into a land He had prepared for us and gave us by His grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. If it was up to our deserving, we would still be slaves in Egypt today. But God, by His grace and His powerful arm, took us out of bondage, took us into a land of promise, though the entire message of Hebrews so far that we've been studying is we did not deserve it. We rebelled every step of the way, and yet by His grace, He delivered a people into the land of promise. So again, a remembrance of thanksgiving. There was a command to put some stones as they crossed uh, the river into the new land. And it was said that when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You should answer like this, right? God delivered us into this land of promise. A remembrance, and that should do what? Make us thankful. Make us thankful. Well, what we're participating in today is not divorced from that. For 2,000 years... The church has gathered around a table instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in our catechism this morning, a table that reminds us of what Christ has done for us, what He accomplished. It pictures back, and as Paul says, that we remember the Lord's death. Right? That is one of the primary things that we are doing as we gather around the Lord's table. We are remembering what He did, what He accomplished, what He did for us. And that is to bring us to remember that and have thanksgiving for it. Because again, it's a, it's a visible, if you will, preaching of the gospel. What right do I have to partake of the body and blood represented by the bread and the cup? Not anything I have done, 
but by what Christ has done. He invited me to His table. He paid the price. I couldn't pay it. He paid the price. It's a visible preaching of the gospel. In fact, Thomas Watson said, in some way it may be more powerful than even the preaching. To believers, now we know that it's the word that gives life. But Thomas Watson said, it's so powerful the Lord commanded this take place in His church. And so, my friends, we need to recognize that we're coming to a table of great importance, a table of remembrance. We gather to worship a King who has blessed us exceedingly and abundantly. And that's been recognized for 2,000 years in what we call communion. Now, it's called communion because of the previous chapter to what we read just a moment ago. Um, Paul talks about uh, participating. He says here, uh, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This is verse 16 of chapter 10. And I'm not going to get into this too much this morning, but uh, scholars said, what is this communion? What is this fellowship that Paul is talking about? Is he talking about uh, fellowshipping in God, fellowshipping with our fellow believers? And the answer that's been given to us throughout the history of the church, I mean, I'm talking about the Reformers, the Puritans on down, is it's not an either or, it's a both and. We participate in what Christ accomplished for us, but we also participate as a body together. When we talk about it not being appropriate to take communion at home on your own, this is why. One of the primary pictures of communion is the body of Christ coming together to share in the table together. Not to get into controversy, but we almost pulled out of it a few years ago because of a parachurch event, and they were going to do communion there. And we said a parachurch has no authorization to offer communion. It's just the church. This is given to the church to do. And so it's important to recognize this. And so again, we've participated in this, which is called communion for this reason. We are fellowshipping together, this idea of koinonia, fellowshipping together with one another in what the Lord has done for us. Now that also brings us to another word, which I mentioned last week that um, has been used for 2,000 years to describe this, and this is the Eucharist. It's not a word we use very often. We often kind of associate it with Catholicism. The Anglicans use it, the Lutherans use it, but it's a good word. It comes from the Greek word, eucharisto, which means I offer thanks or we offer thanks. And it's recognizing that this is an offering of thanksgiving. We shouldn't uh, abandon a word that's been used for 2,000 years uh, so easily. It's a good word. It's a word that we ought to maintain because at its heart I do believe that the Lord's Supper is a time of thanksgiving. A time of thanksgiving. It's a word, by the way, that the Reformers used, the Puritans used, the early Baptists used. It's really been the last hundred years that we got rid of it. I noticed this week, uh, early in this week, I was trying to read uh, the entirety of the Lord's Supper by Thomas Watson this week. Um, I didn't get to do that, but I noticed, I had never noticed this before, the title Thomas Watson uh, gave that book was not the Lord's Supper. The original title he gave that book was the Holy Eucharist. And it's interesting because when you look at it, that is a great title for what we do here. Holy, what does that mean? Set apart? That's an important part of this, isn't it? This is not just for anybody. This is for believers. These are, this is for born-again believers in Jesus Christ. It is a set-apart table, a set-apart meal, a set-apart time. 
but it's also a time that we as believers gather to give thanksgiving to God for what He has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I can't think of really a better description than the one Thomas Watson gave it, Holy Eucharist, but they're all good descriptions. It is the Lord's table. What does that tell us? It's not my table. I can't invite you to it. I can't say, well, okay, you don't believe in Christ, but I'll allow you to come. It's not my table. It is Christ's table. He's the one who sets the invitation to it. We talk about communion. We already said what that means. It's a good term. But my friends, all these things are pointing to what this is. It's a table of thanksgiving, of God's grace, of Christ's mercy upon His people. And so again, all these things are descriptions of what it is. It is a table which we come to together. And one of the reasons I like the song that we sang, the communion hymn that the Gettys wrote, is that it doesn't individualize the communion table. That, I think, is one of the big errors in the modern church. We think of the communion table as our table. You know, there was a, an issue, and I recognize this, for churches in states that were not allowing them to meet or churches that were just not meeting, of how do we have communion? How do we have the Lord's table? And they came up with some pretty poor ways, I think, during that time. We do get into some serious questions about what do you do when you're at home and you have these ministers saying, just go get a can of Coke and some Doritos. My friends, I think we should treat this a little more solemnly than that, a little more seriously than that. And youth groups have been doing that for years, by the way. Um, We need to remember this is something special, something that God has offered Christ's people. This is something that He has purchased by His blood. In fact, we partake of a cup that represents His very blood. We partake of a bread that represents His body, sacrificed for us, purchasing us, and offering us salvation in Him. We also want to say, as is important to say, uh, that uh, we do not believe this is the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, right? This is very important because we know the Catholic doctrine is that when the priest consecrates this, it literally becomes the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. That is false. That is not found in Scripture. Jesus did say uh, that, that this is his body and this is his blood, but he didn't mean it in that way. I remember, I think it was Lady Jane Grey when questioned, the Catholic interrogator, when she was about to go to her death, said, But Jesus himself said, This is my body and this is my blood. Are you calling him a liar? And I think she said something like, No more than when he said, I am the door, right? That he is literally a door. He's not something made of wood that you're going to go knock on, right? That he's speaking symbolically here, that this represents his body and his blood. This represents the price that he paid for us. And that it is important that we partake of it, that He nourishes us through it. And that it is a remembrance, but it's not just a remembrance. We've got to be careful with this as well. There is something here that matters. There is a grace that God gives us through this. It is something in which we are drawn to Him. And you can see that obviously in what Paul says, because there is a curse, if you will, for abusing it. The opposite of a grace, an opposite of a blessing for those that abuse it. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. They do not become the body and blood when I come up here and pray over them. Right? They symbolize the body and blood. And that's what we are to remember and to partake of seriously. But our partaking of them, and the reason I love that song so much, is it reminds us that we not only partake in Christ Jesus, but we partake 
with one another as the body of Christ Jesus. We are His body, the church. And Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we'll come to very quickly in just a moment. So partaking of them pictures our participation in Christ and what He accomplished on the cross. But the reality is we're also a part of the body. We are not separate from the body. We are a part of the body. If we have a place at this table, I should say, we are a part of the body. And it reminds us of our place within the community of believers, the people that Christ has purchased. And so again, all that needs to be remembered. Now as we come to this text we read earlier, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, I want to walk through it. We're not going to do this as we normally do, a three-point sermon or something like that. We're just going to walk through it and exposit it. I'm going to do this a little differently today, but I want us to think about what's said here because it is important. The problem you see throughout 1 Corinthians is a church that is so divided, they don't look like a unified body in anything, right? They are so divided, they are fractured. And Paul points to many evidences of this and, and problems that emerge from it. Uh, some say, well, I'm not with Peter, right? Uh, I'm over here with Apollos, or I'm somewhere like a little higher up and understood and said, hey, I'm, I'm with Jesus. But again, it was factionalized. And that began to be shown in every area of their life, including how they partook the Lord's Supper. And it's important to hear this. Now, I can say 100%, we are a blessed church. We don't have divisions and, and battles, and I am so thankful for that. But in understanding the Lord's Supper, we need to see what Paul says here about divisions and how they make a mockery of the Lord's table. So looking at a church that's divided, he begins in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together to church, I hear there are divisions among you. In part, in part, I believe it. Now, there are divisions. That's not always a bad thing. Paul's going to explain that next. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. God allows divisions to take place so that you can figure out what is the right side of something. Right? But those divisions have to be kept in their proper respect. Listen to what he goes on to say. When you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, they would disagree with that, I would think, wouldn't they? They would say, well, yes, it is. We are coming together uh, to have the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you're not. You're not. It is not the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another drunk. In other words, there's no waiting on each other. There's no togetherness in this. There's factions in this. The Lord's table is not fractured. That's his point. The body of Christ cannot be fractured. So it is not the Lord's table if you are dividing up and some are having too much and some are having not enough and, and they're not together in it. Paul says, if all you want to do is eat and drink, look at verse 22, go home. Go home. If that's a, what it is, eat and fill yourself, go home. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So Paul's talking about the church didn't have the elements in those days. People brought them. You brought bread, right? You brought the cup. And, and some people had plenty for their group. Others had none. They didn't share it. They didn't share it. Paul says this is an abomination. It's a destruction of the picture of what this is supposed to be. And so Paul says, you, you despise the church of God. 
That's what that amounts to. Despising the fellowship, the body of Christ, to allow that to happen, to not wait on one another, to not share with one another in this time. It's not your table, he's saying. It's Christ's table. And you're hijacking it and abusing it for your own purposes. And Paul says that would mean you despise what the table represents. What shall I say to you, Paul says? Shall I praise you in this? Is this praiseworthy? Paul says, I do not praise you. Now, when we read this, every time we have communion, we read it as like a positive instruction, and that's what it is. But Paul's saying, here's what it's supposed to be like. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's not for your filling. It's to remember Christ and what he did. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we're remembering what Christ did for us. But also, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Remember this great promise that we have in Christ Jesus. Now we get to the heavy warning parts that are easy to misunderstand. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, we don't have to wonder how to interpret this. Paul's just told you the problem. People who are partaking of the of the Lord's Supper in division and in selfishness. He says, this is how you do it in such a way that you do it unworthily and you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, think about what he's saying here. You almost switch sides of the ledger. right? Instead of participating in the benefits of communion and the Lord's table, you become the very reason that the Lord died in the first place. right? Sin. You become a sinner. You are sinning. It's a reminder that This is not at all what the table is intended to be. And so for this reason, let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Whoever eats or drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, this is important. What is the body of the Lord? It's His church. It's His church. We are to remember that we are part of the body of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say the judgments that have fallen upon many people who are partaking of the Lord's table in just this way. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we would judge ourselves, be introspective, think about the manner in which we are wrongfully taking communion, he says then God would not judge us, right? We would no longer, assuming we would judge what we're doing wrongly, and then, I mean, we would judge it it's wrong, we would stop doing it, and we would not fall under divine judgment. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, I want you to think about this because some people say, well, the issue he's talking about earlier is not the issue he's talking about there. And yet, look how he ends this. Therefore, that means based on what I've just said, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The summation of all that warning is, again, when you participate, participate together. And it shows you that he's been talking about the same thing the whole time. The problem in Corinth is a people who are misrepresenting what this table represents. They are destroying, if you will, the image of it. Because they're making it a selfish exercise. 
when this table represents the opposite of selfishness. Right? Christ Jesus came into the world. He took on a human nature, took on flesh. He went to Calvary's cross. That's the opposite of selfishness. That is the grace of God exercised in Christ Jesus' ministry and work. And He forgave sinners who had no claim to that forgiveness. None of us have. And the Bible tells us this over and over again. We have no claim to that forgiveness. No no way to argue that it's owed to us. That's why it's called grace, right? Grace means unmerited favor. Favor you do not deserve, did not earn, could not argue for. It is given to you as a gift. Paul makes this point in Ephesians, doesn't he? It's a gift. Paul makes this argument in Romans, right? Uh, To him who works, he is given wages. It's different than a gift. A gift is something you didn't earn. You can't say, I was cheated in. I thought I would get more. doesn't matter. It was a gift. You didn't earn it. A wage is something different. It's a contract. It's something someone says, I'll pay you this much. If they didn't, you might even have legal recourse. But the reality here is this. Since we recognize that it is by God's grace, it is gifted to a people who do not deserve it, in fact, to a people who are the opposite of having deserved it, right? We are hell-bound sinners saved by the grace of Christ. And Paul says, so how can you destroy this image any more than in being ungracious to one another? Unforgiving to one another. Unloving to one another. Now don't misread Paul as saying that means you sweep everything under the rug and overlook every problem. Paul does not do that in this letter. There's one incident where Paul says a man won't repent of something he's been warned about. Kick him out. But Paul says if we are in the body together... We love one another. We share with one another. We forgive one another. We show grace to one another because God has shown that to us. He has shown that to us. And this table is all about that. You know, we talk about coming to the table of the king and I try to use a picture that might make sense to us. Um, In the days of Jesus and in many, many days since then, there have been literal kings, haven't there, in in the world. And no commoner thought, I can just go up and take a seat at the king's table. That was a quick way to have your head detached from your shoulders. You had to be invited to the king's table. Nobody just showed up and sat there. That's what this is reminding us of. Paul says, you by God's grace have been invited to this table representing what Christ accomplished for you on Calvary's cross. And bound to it promises that are given to you, yes, as an individual. Yes, they are given to you as an individual but in the context of being given to a people. We are part of the body of Christ. When we partake of this, we partake of it as a body of Christians. In fact, the local church just represents the body of Christ at large, doesn't it, in a sense. We are a a fellowship that is under good order, all that sort of thing, but we represent, if you will, the body of Christ at large as well. So Paul says, when you come together, recognize that. Recognize love for one another. And if you do that, you'll recognize that the heart of all this is thanksgiving. How can I learn to be forgiving of others? I have to learn to be thankful for them. That's not always easy. We've got to be honest about that. It's not always easy. It takes more grace, right, to do that. Sometimes we have to learn to be more gracious. 
And how do we do that? We remember the example of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says, right? That we remember Christ. We see what He did. That uh, He came into this world and gave His life for us. What one of us has anything to stand on in terms of not being gracious toward others. And so again, Paul says, when you come together, come together in thanksgiving, recognizing what Christ has done for us, recognizing the gift that we've been giving, per- given, partaking of this together as a people. If there's anything I would ask you to do, read this text this week. And if you've got one of the hymn books at home or you can look it up on your computer, read that song again that we sang. It's so beautiful, but it speaks of this very thing. We are brought together, bought as a people, united in Christ Jesus. We really are family. We say that, but we really are in Christ Jesus. And so we come to this table. We share in it together. And that's a picture here. When you come together as a family, you come together because you love one another. And you recognize that as we come together in in this table, we come together as a people united in Christ. Yes, individually, but as a body of believers. And so, my friends, as we do it today, as we prepare to take of this table, of this Eucharist, think of the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. But one of the greatest blessings is that we are part of a body of believers who love one another because of what Christ has done for us. Amen.